The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. If you would please go ahead and turn in your Bible with me to Psalm 90. Nine zero. Before we dive into this psalm together, I want us to start with just a little bit of background on this text. Psalm 90 is a psalm of communal lament, where the psalmist is asking God to intervene and deliver his people from trouble. This particular psalm is unique in a couple of respects. Psalm 90 is believed to be the only psalm authored by Moses the man whom God chose to lead Israel out from oppression in Egypt and into the promised land. This also makes it by far the oldest psalm, likely written somewhere around 1400 BC. Most scholars believe the context of the lament is Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. I want to take you back to that story for just a minute because I think it's helpful for us to remember the lens through which Moses is bringing this plea to God. If you recall, throughout the period following Israel's deliverance, the people are continually grumbling and complaining about the conditions of this long journey to Canaan. And they provoke God's wrath and punishment on multiple occasions. They seem to get stuck in this cycle of disobedience where they rebel against God, God's wrath is kindled against them, then Moses pleads for God's mercy on their behalf so God spares them, And then they rebel again, and the cycle repeats itself. So by the time they finally reach their destination, you can imagine how exhausted Moses must be. He has led the people grumbling and complaining and rebelling all the way to the edge of Canaan, and now it's finally time to enter the promised land. There's just one problem. The current inhabitants of the land are big and strong, and their cities are heavily fortified. It's going to be a hard fight, or so the people think. So how do they respond? Numbers 14. All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Of course, the people's response displeases God. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. So Moses has to intercede for them again. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Only this time, God's response is different. He can no longer tolerate the rebellion of the people. And he sentences them to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness so that this rebellious generation will never enter the promised land. God's wrath against sin becomes evident to the people once again. They should have remembered how God had dealt with the Egyptians over Pharaoh's rebellion not so long ago but it seems that they were prone to forget the nature of God. 
Think about the disappointment and the heartbreak that Moses must have felt at this point. How distraught and how angry must he have been with the people for refusing to trust the Lord's leading and denying the promises that God had set before them. And yet, Moses continues to plead to God on the people's behalf. He continues to appeal to God's mercy and goodness and spare them from the consequences of their sin. That is the posture of Psalm 90. Moses lamenting, pleading to God, asking that he would spare his people and deliver them yet one more time from trouble. So with that context in mind, let's read this psalm together. Psalm 90, beginning in verse 1. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust, saying, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our own secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. I mentioned earlier that this psalm is referred to as a communal lament. We don't do a lot of shared lamenting in the Western church today. We don't normally have a portion of our worship service set aside for lamenting our troubles and crying out to God for help. In fact, even the idea of that is probably uncomfortable for most of us. Church is normally a place to be joyful. We don't wear sackcloth and ashes to church. We don't sing funeral dirges together. No, we put on our nice clothes and we sing cheerful songs and we greet each other with smiles and hugs. And that's good because this is a place to be joyful. It should bring us joy to gather together with other believers each week and reflect on the blessings of God in our lives and worship him together. But it should also be a place where we can lament together at times. It would be foolish to pretend that the experience of a joyful worship service exemplifies everything it means to be a follower of Christ. We know that being a Christian means we are still human. It means facing the temptations of sin and falling prey to the enemy. It means episodes of failure and seasons of sorrow. It means suffering persecution and pain, often without reason or explanation. 
We know this personally, and we often lament to others around us who can relate to those circumstances. And of course, we lament to God individually in prayer, knowing that ultimately he is the only one capable of providing true relief from suffering. But it's difficult to lament communally in a large group without the context of a shared trial or problem. That's why when we do see the church lament together, it's usually in the context of some larger tragic event in society, like a natural disaster or a terrorist attack. That would cause the church to lament. And the people of Israel had plenty to lament about here. As a people, they faced persecution together in Egypt and endured this grueling exodus together. And now they're suffering the consequences of their sin, being forced to live out the rest of their days wandering in the wilderness instead of flourishing in the land that God provided for them. And of course, their troubles did not end there. Centuries later, Israel still faced endless divisions, war, and persecution. In fact, we have an entire book called Lamentations later in the Old Testament, which is literally a collection of laments about the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. Israel was well acquainted with the idea of lamenting together. But Moses' lament here does not apply just to Israel. He's really lamenting about the plight of all mankind. You return man to dust. We are brought to an end by your anger. All our days pass away under your wrath. We can all relate to this lament, even those who now abide in Christ, because apart from him, that is our reality too. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are all by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. But God. This is all of us. We all understand the lament of sin and its consequences. We can all relate to the chaos and destruction and death that we see in our culture around us and sometimes even in our own families and our own lives. And we can all plea to God together for his mercy and cry out to him saying, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. And as much as we might shake our heads at the continual rebellion of Israel, we know deep down that we are no different when it comes to falling into cycles of sin and disobedience and failing to trust God to deliver on his promises. So Psalm 90 then is a lament for our community today as much as it was for the people of Israel thousands of years ago. This is a chance for us to acknowledge God's power and wrath and to reflect on the consequences of our own rebellion. This text should lead us to implore God's mercy and ask for his direction to lead us out of the wilderness of sin and into the light of his glorious presence. I think the best way to understand and apply this particular lament is to see it in two different phases, worship and petition. Worship is an essential part of lament. We must first recognize who God is and where we stand in relation to him. Only then can we approach the throne of God with the proper context and humility to petition him for help. First worship God, then petition him. Worship, then petition This is what we see from Moses in the psalm. Before he gets to asking God for help, he first recognizes how great this God is, whose help he is seeking. He spends the first half of this psalm worshiping the Lord, extolling him for his goodness, his righteousness, and his power. 
He is not like one of the false gods, which Moses constantly had to caution the Israelites about. He is not a mythical deity who might be appealed to now and then to change the weather or to win a battle. No, this is Yahweh, so powerful and so holy that the Hebrews would not even utter the name out loud for fear that it might diminish its sacredness. But he's also not some distant being who's too superior to interact with mere mortals. No, he's Israel's rescuer, the God who loved his people so much that he brought them out of captivity and persecution to deliver them to a new land of abundance and prosperity for generations to come. This is the God of the Bible that we appeal to when we lament. He is just as holy and just as righteous today as he was then, and we ought to have the same level of reverence and awe that Moses did. And God is not distant to us either. He is our personal rescuer, our savior, who came down from heaven to dwell among us and gave himself up for us to extend to us a promise that even, was even greater than the earthly promised land, a promise of new and everlasting life in Christ. This God is worthy of our worship. We worship him not only for what he has done, but also for who he is, for his character. The characteristics of God are often summarized in the three omnis, his omnipresence, his omniscience, and his omnipotence. I know these are familiar to most of us, but I want to take a few minutes to just highlight each one of these in this text to help us recognize and remember the attributes of God when we go before him and worship. First in this text, we see his omnipresence. This has two implications. God is both always present, meaning his presence is eternal, and he's also all present, meaning he is everywhere. His presence is eternal and everywhere. We see both of these in the psalm. The eternal nature of God is embedded in the contrast that Moses describes between the everlasting God who created man and the short-lived man who serves him. He says in verse 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And he says in verse 4, a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Contrast that language with his depictions of man, where he says, we return to dust and we're swept away like a flood. We vanish like a dream and wither like a blade of grass. God is everlasting, but man's life is fleeting. As I've spent time with this text recently, I've really grown to appreciate the imagery of verse 4, where Moses describes a thousand years in God's sight as like a watch in the night. Historically, the Israelites would divide their night into three military watches, three shifts where soldiers would take turns on their post, guarding the camp and watching for the enemy. Each watch consisted of a four-hour period, Four hours doesn't sound like a lot of time, but in the middle of the night when it's quiet and you're exhausted and trying to be vigilant and stay awake, four hours can feel excruciatingly long. I think we can all relate to that to some degree. As a father of three kids, age three and under, I can tell you that when my wife leaves for one hour, let alone four hours, feels like an eternity. She's only going to the grocery store. It sounds great at the beginning. No problem, babe. I've got this. I can handle the kids. You should take your time. Go get a coffee afterwards. Enjoy your time away. It will be fine. Ten minutes in, 
She hasn't even made it to the store yet, and I'm calling to ask where my younger son's shoes are. And what time is the baby supposed to go down for a nap again? She seems a little cranky. And you did say you were coming straight home afterwards, right? Okay, please hurry. A few hours doesn't sound like a long time, but in a turbulent situation, it can seem much longer. Our perspective of time is so tied to our daily existence. We live hour by hour and day to day, but God exists entirely outside of space and time. He is always present. He is eternal. Perhaps even more striking in this text is the all-present nature of God. In verse 1, Moses says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Remember, at this point in time, the Israelites are essentially nomads. They've been on this meandering journey to Canaan, and now they're wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, avoiding their enemies and waiting for the day when their children will finally be able to enter the promised land. They did not have a literal dwelling place. So for Moses to say that God is our dwelling place, that is especially meaningful. Throughout all this time, despite the people's continual rebellion and disobedience, God was there with them. In their exodus from Egypt, he was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, guiding them safely as they fled Pharaoh's army. He dwelt among them in the tabernacle wherever they roamed. And he spoke regularly with Moses directly, giving him wisdom and instruction to lead the people. God was a constant presence for Israel, even though they were always on the move and their situation was constantly changing. Isn't that a comforting thought for us today too? In some ways, our culture is more nomadic than Israel. Our circumstances are always changing. We move from place to place and job to job and school to school and even from church to church. We graduate, we change careers, our family dynamics change, we have kids, we have grandkids, we retire. And our culture shifts around us constantly too, whether we like it or not. Political leaders and movements come and go, standards change, millennia of morals go out the window in a decade. Our world and our circumstances are always changing, and yet God is a steady presence for us. He is the constant variable that we can rely on when all else seems unrooted and out of control. Every moment of every day for all time, he has been, he is, and he will be. What a blessing to worship a God who is omnipresent. Amen? God is omnipresent, and God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. He knows everything. This is evident in verse 12 of this psalm where Moses asks God to teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. That wisdom does not come from within. That comes from the Lord. As Proverbs 2.6 says, the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. In fact, we see this all throughout scripture. One of my favorite passages comes from the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. He's actually quoting a couple of different references from Isaiah and Job, and he sort of smushes them together in this beautiful doxology to end chapter 11 of Romans. Paul says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.
Not only is God the source of all wisdom and knowledge in general, but he has specific knowledge about you and me. If we had time, we could go through all of Psalm 139. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Going back to Psalm 90, we see that God knows even the things we wish he did not know. Verse 8 says, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. Our secret sins are not so secret to God. He knows our struggles and our failures. He knows even the deepest secrets that we keep from those who know us best. That is a sobering thought. But then again, would you want to worship a God who doesn't know your sin struggles? A God who can only see the presentable parts of your life? The reason that we can rest secure in the Lord is because we know he sees our sin and yet he loves us anyway. He loves us unconditionally in spite of our sin. Take heart and praise God because he knows all things and because he knows you and yet he loves you. We should worship him for his omniscience. Amen? Amen. Of course, God's unconditional love for us doesn't mean that our sin is without consequence. Apart from Christ, we would experience the full wrath of God because of our sin, which brings us to God's omnipotence. He is all-powerful. First of all, Moses reminds us that God is the all-powerful creator in verse 2. He brought forth the mountains and formed the earth and the world. When we read the opening chapters of Genesis, we see how God in eternity, existing outside of time and space, brings all matter into being simply through his spoken word. That is enough to bring us to our knees in worship right there. But he doesn't stop with the creation of the world itself. He then fills it with all manner of living things, sea creatures and birds and livestock and creeping things and all the beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And then in his pinnacle act of creation, he forms man from the dust of the ground and breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. He brings man forth from the dust. And then what happens? The fall. The curse. Sin enters the world. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, God proclaims the consequences of man's rebellion. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, and you are dust. To dust you shall return. That is the imagery that Moses invokes here in verse 3 of Psalm 90, where he says, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. We return to the ground like dust. And verse 7 says, We are brought to an end by God's anger. By his wrath, we are dismayed. God is all-powerful, and he is also all-righteous. He cannot tolerate sin, so he must purge it. The wages of sin are death. And so our lives on this earth are not long, and they are certainly not carefree. Moses notes that the years of our life are 70, maybe 80 if we're really strong. Apparently, Moses was hitting the gym a lot because he lived to 120. (laughs) Most of us are not that blessed. Our years are brief and filled with toil and trouble, as verse 10 says. They are soon gone and we fly away. Our lives are short 
and difficult and the consequences of our sin are devastating. God's wrath is very real. But thankfully, we serve a God who is not only to be feared for his power, he is also to be adored for the grace which he extends by that power. Look with me at the last few verses of the psalm, beginning in uh, verse 13. All the things that Moses pleads for here are attributes of God that we already know to be true. I think Moses isn't so much asking for these things as he is reminding himself of who God is. It is good for us to ask the Lord to remind us of these truths and to worship him for the power that he displays in these virtues. Look with me starting in verse 13. He has pity on us. He desires to satisfy us with his steadfast love. He desires that we would rejoice and be glad all our days. He grants his favor upon us. He shows us his works and demonstrates his glorious power from one generation to the next. And most significantly in verse 17, when we follow after him, he will, by his power, establish the work of our hands. He gives our lives purpose and meaning, which we can't gain on our own. That only comes from the almighty power of God over our lives. Praise him, for he is omnipotent. Amen? Amen. So we worship God for his omnipresence, his omniscience, and his omnipotence. We worship him for who he is and for what he has done. And then our worship of God leads us to the second phase of the lament, which is petition, the plea for God's help. We recognize who we are, and who God is in contrast. And then we approach him with that understanding and we ask him to sustain us and provide us direction. God, carry me through this life of trouble. Show me what to do and give me the strength to do it. Make my life meaningful so that I may glorify you with it. That is the prayer of petition in this lament. So what does Moses ask for specifically to make his life meaningful to God? How do we make the most of our short time on this earth, according to this text? I see three practical responses here. There's actually probably more than three, but my two-month-old baby girl is here with us, so my wife said I need to keep it short. She's going to need to take a nap soon, and the baby probably will too. First, and this is probably the hardest one to do, but I think it's the most important. We must purge sin from our lives. Get rid of sin, remove it, and repent of it. Turn away from it. This includes our secret sins, as Moses calls them in verse 8. These are perhaps most sinister because they aren't exposed to the light of day, and we know that evil thrives under the cover of darkness. We've seen it happen time and time again. Famous pastors and ministry leaders who have had an entire lifetime of work devoted to the things of God, seemingly undone in a moment of sin. No amount of good works can defeat sin or sufficiently cover it up. It will waste your life, and it will prevent you from participating in what God has for you. And it is deceivingly powerful. Satan only needs a foothold. That's all he needs to destroy your life from the inside out. Recall what the Lord told Cain after he became angry that his offering was not favored like his brother's. God said, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. 
It desires to have you, and you must rule over it. The good news is that God is omnipotent, remember. He is all-powerful, more powerful than Satan, more potent than the deepest, darkest sin of our hearts. That is the message of the gospel. When we submit ourselves to Christ, he is willing and he is able to deliver us from evil. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Lament to the Lord, cry out to him, repent and purge the sin that indwells your life so that your life can be used for his good purposes. Second, carry out God's mission. This comes through in two ideas that are presented here in the psalm. Number your days and allow God to establish your work. Again, in verse 12, teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Take stock in what you have been given and what you have left. In our worship of God, we've already acknowledged that while God is eternal, our life is fleeting. It's short, 70 or 80 years, that's about it. We don't know what tomorrow will bring, and we should not live as if we do. James 4 says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. That's not how we're trained to think, is it? The world tells us to plan for our future, but not for our eternal future. They mean plan for your future in this world because that's all there is. We know better. We know that God's kingdom, the kingdom of which we are a part, is not of this world. But we don't always act like it, do we? 70 or 80 years sounds like a long time, but on God's timeline, that's just a blip. No matter how old you are right now, on the scale of eternity, you might as well only have a few years left on this earth. If you truly believed that you only had a few years left to live, would you live differently than you do now? Would you read God's word daily to be sure you know what it says? Would you spend more time discipling your kids to make sure they understand it too? Would you finally have that awkward conversation with your unsaved friend? Would you pour yourself into serving your church to help them reach your community with the gospel? What happens when we consider these things? When we stop and number our days, we gain a heart of wisdom. We gain God's eternal perspective that helps us navigate the pitfalls of the world so that we don't have to waste our brief life on this earth. Our lives are short, but they don't have to be void of meaning and substance. Number your days that you may gain a heart of wisdom. Of course, most of us know what we ought to be doing. We just aren't always motivated to do it. This gets at the last verse of the psalm, verse 17. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Some translations say confirm for us the work of our hands. We already know the work that we've been called to do by God. If you don't know, that means you haven't spent enough time with this, right? Scripture clearly lays out our mission of worship, discipleship, and evangelism.
It's summarized in the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And in the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. That's it. That's the work God has established for us to do. Love God, love others, make disciples. And they all go hand in hand, don't they? You can't really do one of those things well without doing the other two. Love God, love others, make disciples. And all three of those are less complicated than we make them out to be sometimes. Do you know how to worship God? Do you have neighbors? Do you know how to treat someone in the way that you want to be treated? Do you live in a nation? Then go make disciples in that nation. And if you're a parent, aren't you already discipling your children? You should be. The command is not to travel to the other side of the world, and it's not to get a seminary degree. The command is not even necessarily to find something new that God wants you to do. It may just be to be faithful in whatever God has already called you to do. Love God, love others, make disciples. That's the mission. So our lives are made meaningful by purging sin from our lives and by carrying out God's mission. And lastly, our lives are meaningful when we are satisfied in the Lord, when we rejoice and be glad. Look with me at verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many years as we have seen evil. The Israelites had seen a lot of evil in their days of oppression in Egypt. And even from within their own people during this time of Exodus. But Moses says, for as many days as we have seen evil, let us now be glad in the Lord. Let us celebrate his goodness and be satisfied in his steadfast love. An amazing thing happens when you are satisfied by someone's love. Our culture has attempted to diminish and corrupt the institution of marriage. But when done faithfully, it remains a beautiful picture of God's love for us. When you enter into a covenant of marriage with another person, and swear to them before God that you will never leave them, that you will be with them in sickness and in health, for richer or poorer, as long as you both live. That is not bondage, that is freedom. There is peace and security and satisfaction that comes from that kind of love. And how much greater then is the perfect, unconditional love of God? It should satisfy us so much that we can't help but rejoice and be glad all of our days. Being satisfied also means that we're grateful for God's mercy and humbled by the sacrifice he made on our behalf and for the promise of eternal life that we get to enjoy. And all of this goodness should cause us to be so joyful that we can't contain it. When we live a life of rejoicing, being satisfied in the Lord continually, that type of joy is difficult to contain. It spreads and it points others to our good God so they too may know him and worship him, living joyful and satisfied lives in return. So how do we live a life that is meaningful before God? Purge sin from your life. Repent, turn away from sin, and back to God. Number two, carry out God's mission. Love God, love others, make disciples, 
Number your days so you can walk in wisdom and do God's work well. And three, rejoice and be glad. Live a life that radiates satisfaction and the love of God so that the world around you may see and know the God of the Bible whom we worship. Who knew lamenting could be so joyful? Going back to these two phases of lament that we see in Psalm 90, first worship and then petition. I think we often get these two phases of lament backwards. Sometimes we petition God before we are willing to submit ourselves in worship to him. And in doing so, we make our relationship with God transactional and conditional. We want to ask God for help first, and then if he fixes our problem, then we'll worship him for it and give him the glory he's due. God, if you just help me figure out this situation first, then I promise I'll make more time for you. Just get me through school first, then I'll figure out how to live for you. Just get me through this busy season of work, and then I can invest in serving my church. Just help me raise my kids first, and then I'll have more time to tell my neighbors about Jesus. And if you'll just help me grow this nest egg for my retirement, then I'll have more money later on to give to missions. Never really ends, does it? That's the way our brains work, and that's the way the Israelites thought too. Lord, just give us what we want, and we'll stop rebelling against you. Just get us to the promised land, and then we'll have everything we need to live for you. Just give us a dwelling place first, and then we can build your temple, and then we can worship you. No, Moses says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And you today, if you are abiding in Christ, you already have everything you need to live for him. Second Peter chapter 1 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. God has already given us everything we need for life and godliness. If you have trusted in Christ for salvation from your sin, then brother or sister, you know what you've been called to do. Go and serve the Lord, repenting and rejoicing as you go. Love God, love others, make disciples. Lament in seasons of sorrow, but always rejoice in your salvation. And if you haven't placed your faith in Christ, then know that all, that is all that stands between you and a meaningful life. You too can have the privilege to come before God in worship and petition him for his grace. He is faithful and just to forgive.